Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. What's going on here is beyond normal. It's completely extraordinary in a very positive way. Business brings the world together. It may be quite brutal, it may be quite you know, simple, it may not be very intellectual or, or refined, but there's something about the entrepreneurship. There are only two kinds of people, that the ones that are discouraged by failure and the ones that are encouraged by failure. And that's what makes the difference. It's Innovation in Europe by Project Kazimierz. Now another episode with your hosts Richard Lucas and Samuel Cook. Hello again, Project Kazimierz listener. This is Sam Cook, your host, and I'm here with my co-host Richard Lucas. For <laughs> Richard, how you doing? For another episode of Project Kazimierz, where we are exploring the exciting innovation that's developing in Eastern Europe in what's we believe is the future of technology um, in this part of the world and, and hopefully a world leader. So I'm here and as is our custom, since Richard is the man who's connected to the entire community here, I'll let him introduce our next guest. How are you doing today, Richard? I'm doing very well. And uh, we're in the office of uh, a company called Local Life That's uh, uh, with my friend Mark Bradshaw, who I met approximately 15 years ago. It must be that long ago. Um, Via a, a, a mutual friend who's a very old Polish lady who survived deportation to the Soviet the Soviet camps during the Second World War. And we met in Dorset in Sherman in, in uh, the west of England. And at that stage, I had a Polish wife. And I'm not sure whether you were married, but you were soon to become I think a I was uh, just about to get married. You were back in married and certainly soon to become a father. <laughs> and, 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 and soon to move over to, to, to Poland for, exactly. for good. Exactly. It seemed at the time that I was only going to come for a couple of years, I thought. But yeah. It's about to be a little longer. So, so, and um, I, I knew that Mark was coming here to start a business, but I was doing my thing and he was doing his thing. So I, we didn't really make, have that much contact in the first few years. But rather than me run through Mark's businesses, um, I think it'd be much better if you introduced them yourself, starting perhaps with Cracker Life, moving through the newspaper. I don't know if you want to talk about the ringtones or. Well, actually, no, I think before that, maybe you could talk about what happened before you came to Poland, because I think that's quite an interesting well, story as well. Well, yes, I mean, very briefly, I'm actually from uh, Zimbabwe, which was uh, used to be called Rhodesia. Um, and uh, as you may know, uh, in the 1990s, there was a sort of a revolution, if you like, where the president for life, as it's turned out, Robert Mugabe, decided that uh, as he wasn't very popular, the best way to stay in power was to hand out property that didn't belong to him. In this case, it turned out to be uh, property belonging to white farmers, of which I was one, a tobacco farmer. So I just met my wife, uh, future wife, uh, and she was living with me in Zimbabwe. And uh, we decided uh, we had to leave the country, of course. Uh, we came to Poland thinking that we would be here for a year or two, uh, that things would blow over, that we'd be invited back to Zimbabwe, but didn't turn out that way. Um, so I had to kind of reinvent myself, I would say, 
from being a tobacco farmer. So what do you do when you're in uh, Poland? I just started uh, learning new skills, and that's how it all started. Mm -hmm. you, I think we studied in a rather prestigious university. Didn't we? <laughs> uh, could you take us a bit about your background before you, before you became a farmer? Yes, that's, that's correct. Well, I was actually born in Zimbabwe, but most of my education was in the United Kingdom. So uh, that included uh, studying at the University of Cambridge. Uh, where I did uh, medieval history, so very useful for tobacco <laughs> and other such things. But my heart was always in Africa, so as soon as I finished my studies, it was straight back there and uh, and onto the farm. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing about the British system that it, it's not thought to matter if you haven't studied the thing that you end up doing. In a way, you know, some other cultures, it's regarded as rather weird if an English literature graduate goes into banking in the UK. That's completely normal for it, some it, reason. Exactly, and I think also from the English system, there's this idea of a gap year, which often doesn't happen in the rest of Europe or elsewhere. In fact, where people are encouraged to explore other activities that they might not do even in their professional life thereafter. Well, you're, you're not going to get any argument from me on um, the uh, value of studying a completely useless uh, subject as, as history because I was a history professor myself. And Very good. <laughs> well, I'd say not a, not a useless subject, just a different subject and another way to, to train the brain. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then when you came to Krakow, uh, you said you set up this business, Krakow uh, uh, Life. How did you get the idea of that and what did you do and what was the, like, what was the moment in which you realized that it might be more than more than something that just is like a web, yet another website. Right, well I had a, uh, I still do have a very good friend called Ian Martin who, who ran a very successful website in the United Kingdom called natives.co.uk and it's a ski job site, it's a place where people who are looking for work as you know, chalet guides or uh, ski guides or chalet girls might go and, uh, and find jobs. Um, and he knew we were living in Krakow and he'd heard that it was a, a funky and interesting city. So he said, can I come and stay on your couch? Of course, this was before the days of couch surfing. And uh, we, we were very happy to see him. And when Ian came, he said to me, you know, Mark, I was looking to find information about pubs in Krakow on the Internet before I came. And there is nothing. So he said, while you're waiting to go back to Zimbabwe, which was never to be, he said, why don't you just start a website and call it something like crackofpubs.com? Uh, and uh, this idea, he, he sort of planted a seed in my brain. I thought about crack of pubs, and I thought, well, if you're going to do pubs, why not do restaurants and hotels and so on? So I wanted to come up with a name that would capture all of these things. Of course, I had no programming skills. But the, the beauty of the internet and you know general publications is you can teach yourself these things. So I bought myself, to my shame, PHP for dummies, <laughs> and I sat down and I learned how to program in a sort of basic manner. And uh, and then we launched the site, and I think within two or three months the, the traffic started to grow quite rapidly, and we thought that actually this could become a, a real business and not just a hobby. Mm -hmm. and, and what was the business model? Because uh, these days everyone asks that question, but back then I didn't even know what a business model was. I, correct, correct. I, I was like randomly doing my stuff, buying things for one and selling them for three, which I call quite a good business model. But correct. correct. How are you making money off the site? Well, effectively as a sort of a directory of businesses. Mm -hmm. So the idea was uh, before we put a pub uh, or a restaurant on the website, why don't we go to them and see if they would be prepared to pay for it? Uh, we started off uh, asking businesses to pay 40 zloty per year, which was, you know, 
a rather meagre amount. That's about 13 US dollars. We're recording this, by the way, in 2015. Perhaps when you're listening to this in the future, you won't know what a dollar is. But at the moment, the dollar is the world's major currency. Um, <laughs> going, going up right now. So. <laughs> it's quite high, but they're about, they're about three, three and a bit Polish swatty to a dollar at the time we're recording this. Almost that, four. That's almost, four. almost four now. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, we weren't even sort of thinking along the lines of a business at that stage, but it became apparent that there was a massive need for this. Of course, many of the businesses didn't have their own websites, so we provided that storefront, if you like, for them on, on the internet. A lot of them didn't even have email addresses, which was also uh, something we had to explain was quite useful in the, in the, in the new world that was about to descend on, on Poland and Krakow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then... Um... I'm not sure which was first. You got involved in a ringtone business and you got involved in the newspaper, the, um, Krakow Post. the Krakow Post. Which came first? Well, the ringtone business, um, after I'd been running Krakow Fly for about uh, two years, uh, I had found people to take on the sort of day-to-day -day running of it by and large and just expand the, the base of our, our customers, uh, continue to add content and so on. And I came in touch with a gentleman called Wayne Pitu. Uh, who is uh, growing one of the largest uh, ringtone uh, download businesses in the world, actually. Uh, and he said to me, Mark, the future's all mobile. It's time, you know, don't concentrate on the web. The web is dead. Um, please join me with this. Um, they had a very highly scalable business model, which was to uh, sell ringtones using television as the main medium for advertising. So not magazines for, for young people, but direct to... to uh, uh, television and uh, the response was massive of course and it was a great learning experience for me for about a year and a half mm -hmm. okay and uh, actually in terms of like farming setting up a business here um, then the ringtones these are like I, I, I sometimes wonder are farmers entrepreneurs and I think probably they very much are even though they're not typically the people I mean you're, you're not so active in the startup community here but when when I go to all the networking events in Google for entrepreneurs or Hood Brown or uh, Vidfornia you know I don't often meet a farmer so so uh, would you say you were a, an entrepreneur before you became a farmer or was farming an entrepreneurial activity? I think farming is an entrepreneurial activity particularly in Africa perhaps you can be a farmer you know in, a, uh, in Western Europe and simply concentrate on managing other people but uh, in Africa, it's a very hands-on kind of role, and that's actually what I really love about a business, is getting involved, learning how everything works, and, and learning how to fix things yourself, rather than uh, outsourcing them, if you have to. Mm -hmm. um, in, in Africa, you really, really have to be super self-sufficient, so that means everything from uh, being able to do electrical work, plumbing work, uh, fixing tractors, uh, and, and, and I, love, I love learning lots and lots of skills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so then was the, the, what about the newspaper? What's the story there? So, so that, I, I, this, is, this, is, this has been an episode in my life as well <laughs> that actually left me with less money afterwards than before. So, well, I, so we, I, I've got my own feelings about the newspaper, but it's an interesting story, I think. Well, with, with Cracker Life uh, grew fairly rapidly. Uh, what we first of all did is we started expanding the same business model into different cities, both in Poland, the five other cities from Wrocław, uh, Zakopane, uh, Gdansk and so on, but also regionally. Um, this started to grow really quite quickly, and uh, particularly in Krakow, we reached a fair a saturation point in terms of the amount of space that we could offer to advertisers on our on our website, and also printed maps which accompany this. So 
we were really full and we were looking for a new outlet for basically keen advertisers. Nobody wants to turn an advertiser away, right? We're talking about 2005 to perhaps 2009, this sort of period. Uh, so we, we'd heard about a newspaper called the Crack of Post, which had been run by uh, an American and, and a Dutch expat here. They'd run it for a couple of years, and then I think they decided to go back to their respective countries. And uh, the newspaper had been quite popular, but they weren't in a position to continue to run it. So we, we purchased the, the, the Crack of Post from it, uh, from them, uh, and used that as an extra source of uh, advertising placement, if you like. Mm-hmm. And talking about your expansion to other cities, this, this is something that I'm familiar with, uh, a business I used to be very involved in called PMR, that's still I'm slightly involved in. And we ran portal sites, in, in business information portal sites, but we had a template. And I remember that uh, at one stage that you'd met someone from New Zealand, and I think you had Wellington Life or Auckland. Auckland Life, or Auckland I think Life. it's still there. But, but, but when, when you click, because each city had the same, the same template, which of course brought your design costs down. But I remember when you clicked on the restaurants in Auckland, they came up with restaurants in Krakow, because, because no one had actually updated the content. Um, so, so how many cities are actually just to give some of the, because then, sorry, maybe you talk about the newspaper. So the newspaper was a few years and then, um, you decided to well, s- well, stop uh, carrying on with that. Sorry. Well, the thing with the newspapers was that, uh, it, you know, it was, there were a lot of people interested in advertising and were advertising with the newspaper. But when we sort of came to the crisis years, I would say of 2008 to 2009, uh, it was pretty clear that, uh, advertisers were beginning to move their, their, Advertising spend more online and, and less into print for obvious reasons. So uh, at that point, uh, we slightly re- we reduced the frequency and the number of the of the newspapers that we were printing. At the same time, maintaining you know a lot of editorial content online. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the other thing, which if anyone listening to this podcast anywhere in the world is aware of the fact that the distribution content of the distribution cost of getting getting the, our intelligent and nice voices and sounds into your brain are very, very low. The distribution, co- I remember when I looked at the Krakow Post, the, the, the hassle of distributing physical paper co- copies is, is rather higher than getting information across the web to people. Yes, but I think, you know, in, interesting and, interestingly enough, we also uh, produce a print uh, map, which we, we hand out free, an events guide, which we've been handing out for, for over 12 years now. And uh, although there's been a massive swing away from print, uh, print seems to be making a little bit of a comeback, I would say now, because because the internet itself is so so crowded, if you like, it's so uh, it's very difficult just to stand out on the internet. But uh, having a, a physical uh, printed item to to complement that seems to be something that yeah, I, I think I was, I was either, either in the, on the BBC or in the Economist, I was reading that the great thing about print on paper is that it has a fantastic battery life. That you, if <laughs> yes, you're storing, and you're you can drop it in the bar. You, you, you see you store data on paper and it really is not going to go down on you in a way, which is why everyone prints things out before they go to meetings, just in case they can't fire up their laptop. Okay, so then there was the question of the rebranding away from away from Krakow life to local life. What was what was the story then? Well, I mean, uh, as you can imagine, we, we, we went up to about 32 different cities following the same pattern, walsforlife.com, you know, vlife.com and so on. And uh, it's very difficult to, to keep all these different sites uh, running, you know, effectively updating them or um, also in terms of linking between them, you know, Google, SEO, there are certain uh, limits they put at, at the number of domains that you should have. Tech, for certain technical reasons, uh, 
we, it seemed that if we were going to grow beyond that point, it would make sense uh, to, to roll everything into one. And that also, of course, has advantages in terms of branding. So we didn't, when we were contacting advertisers, they would be saying, you know, who are you? And you say, well, we're Crack of Life and Warsaw Life and Gdansk Life. It's quite difficult to explain exactly who you are. So we decided to put everything into one, one, one brand name, Local Life. And that's taken us quite a lot of time, I would say, over a year, mm-hmm. technically. And, uh, uh, but the benefits are now to be, uh, to be realized and they're certainly be, being so. And how, how many cities are you currently active in? We have about 38 cities now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we've done is we've turned, because we realized that the, the most valuable thing in this whole business are people, actually. We can't be everywhere at once. So what we've done is we've turned our business from some, something where we were either employing people in these various cities or we were um, uh, finding local people is we've actually turned it into a licensing system, effectively a franchise. So now we encourage people who are either in a city uh, with which they know extremely well to contact us and we would simply provide them the tools to to become the leading guide in that destination. So if there was someone listening to this from a, a, an interesting touristy city where you didn't have someone that you'd be glad to talk to them about, about running out a, a whatever, a Madrid life or a, Co- correct. Or, or a correct, life. correct. And, and the technology that we've created allows us to, to roll that out in a matter of days, if mm-hmm. you like. It's, it's and, and, and also for anyone listening, I, I've known Mark for many years and he's a fair guy, so there are a lot of people in the franchise business who, the, the, who like promise a lot and under deliver, but I think you well, whatever it says on the tin will be inside it as far as I as far as I can judge. Uh, what I, what I would also say is that you know it's um, people do contact us and and it is a hot, a lot of work. Whatever franchise one gets involved in and whatever business one gets involved in, it's not a shortcut to some kind of success. Hard work, of course, is, is always. Yeah, I think e- easy. If, if it was easy, then everyone would do it, and it would no longer be easy because there would be lots of competition, right? Correct. And, and that, that actually, one of the things I'd like to, you know, Mark, you've been involved in uh, the really the information publishing business for a while now and have seen the transition uh, from digital to print. And what, what Richard just said really reminds me of, of the world that we live in right now, which is it's never been easier to put out content. Uh, just like this podcast, I mean, you know, it's it's technically not hard, and it keeps getting easier, which 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 means that it's never been harder to be heard. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the paradox of it's never been easier to do this, and it, therefore it's never been harder to get your voice out there? Well, yes, I think there's there's also this kind of delay fact. I mean, we were fortunate enough to be um, uh, starting Crack of Life when there was not a lot of competition, shall I say? So. Uh, First mover advantage, et cetera, et cetera. Now we have, you know, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and all the people who weren't here uh, in Krakow uh, now around us. Of course, there are people who everybody feels they need to be involved in a startup now, and that problem, as you as as you mentioned, uh, means that everybody's trying to do the same thing, and often they're not trying to do anything original. So I would be saying to those people, you know, are you sure you have an original idea? Uh, don't simply copy what's out there because it, it's actually harder to compete online sometimes because there are so many uh, people in that in that space. Try and do something a little bit different. Maybe even do something in print first because that maybe maybe give you a little key or or, or uh, something different to get in there. Yeah, and and you've also seen the transition from uh, which was really accelerated by the last downturn away from print, and then that 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 coming back a little bit. Um, how do you how do you see the 
the future of digital and print publishing interacting with each other? Because I, I know that that's uh, something that you, you have your hands in both both sides of that. Well, the, the main challenge for publishers is that, is that everybody expects everything to be for free now. And the, the, the fact of the matter is it has to be for free. I think anybody who's putting up paywalls in the hope that they can create better quality content, which people will somehow pay for, uh, are just burying their heads in the sand. Uh, it may work for a short while. I, I certainly know some uh, very good publications have managed to, to, what I would say is they're extending their demise somewhat. Um, all the major publishers in the future will be providing stuff for free. How they can do that and make money is is anybody's guess right now. I imagine it will be it will involve citizen journalists and uh, user-generated content to a massive extent, and actually trying to find the superstars amongst their readership who are prepared to add quality content for free. My, my brother, who uh, we interviewed earlier for this series, Evan Lucas at the Economist, said to me once that everyone wants information to be available fast high quality and for free and you can have two of those three things but it's hard to have all three for because for very obvious reasons it's rather like the good cheap second-hand car you can have it good in second hand and it's not cheap etc etc and there, there obviously is a tremendous issue there and you know the the, the revenues of the economist group are, uh, are in trouble because the advertising spend is going down and google's eating eating one of their major revenue streams because it's better value for money to put £100,000 into Google advertising on AdWords and to put it in full-color, unmeasurable print advertising, I guess. Yes. But, but for example, there's no reason why a, a very talented writer will not write for a quality publication for free in return, for example, for just getting his name out there. He may be providing consultancy services after hours. Who, who knows what? Mm. But I do believe that uh, the cost of content uh, will go down and it doesn't necessarily mean that the quality will will drop in line with that. I mean, I, this is a debate we could have for a long time. Um, <laughs> one of the nice things about being in a free society is we don't have to agree with each other about, about everything. But I, also, I, I would be very, uh, I think it'd be nice, uh, valuable, there's a photo on the wall showing Bidrum above your head. And Bidrum is actually a very nice story for me because it ended with you being better off at the end of it than when you started, I discovered recently, which is, which is very good. Could you tell people about Bidrum? Because it's a, it's a nice story. Well, well, Bidrum is, um, uh, I wouldn't like to use the word disruptive because everybody uses that about every single idea. It's a, an idea about uh, hotel booking that I had a few years ago, which was to turn the whole process on its head rather than look online for what uh, hotels are available, to actually tell hotels that you're coming to a particular city on a particular day and ask them to bid uh, against each other for your custom. Um, this was a, an idea I came up with, uh, launched a website, got some investors, and, and have recently left. Uh, so uh, it's been a great learning experience. Uh, learning about investment, uh, working with people remotely, which I haven't done much before, um, but it's something that's now in the past. And as you say, uh, I'm, I'm working on similar projects. Uh, using that experience to try and find the key elements that will both excite me and give the, the project the very best chance of success. Mm -hmm. 
And I know you you got some money out of it, and probably you don't want to tell us the exact amount. But has it made you a multi multi millionaire, or do you just feel you're lucky you're lucky to have got a bit bit of the time you invested? Back? It's not it's not something I can talk about for, okay. for obvious reasons. Yeah. Okay, there are there are people who do, and there are many people who don't. And I was I was just I was particularly answer. Um, the um, so so now there's a new project which is like a sort of an, uh, an Uber for food. Could you talk about can you talk about that? Yes, I mean I think the the thing that Vidrin really showed me is that you need to concentrate on strong ideas and not try and rework ideas that are currently working for other people because the markets are so saturated with people who know how to do that extremely well. So um, the idea is, you know, I'm walking around the town. Uh, it actually came from when we were in Sandemir with my wife in the summer last, last year. We're walking around and of course there are lots of restaurants there where you can eat so-called Polish food. But it's all pretty much what I would call Disney food. It's food uh, for tourists. But I'm looking around the windows above and thinking, well, there's people here who are cooking nice local, you know, real food. And that's probably where I'd really like to be eating. How do we put those people directly in touch with the tourists below? Um, and of course, technology is a fantastic enabler of this. So. Uh, the idea is rather than build the platform for the world to do this, is just start in a very small uh, way by offering this service ourselves. So my wife and I, as of last week, have decided we're going to cook once a week, see who we can find through the internet, through our various channels, see if they're interested in coming and eating with local people, see if we like doing it, uh, find all the problems that are bound to exist before uh, we, 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 we build the platform, and, and just see if this is an idea that might have, have legs. So that's where we are, basically. We are a week into this, into this project, which we call Eat Away. Um, and uh, next week, we will launch a very, very simple uh, website, eataway.com. And uh, we'll see, see what the uptake is. Mm. One of the things that might be obvious to people listening, but if it isn't obvious, I'll explain is you talk about the way you leverage one business off another, but in both in the case of Bidroom and with Eataway, the fact you've got some traffic is quite significant, isn't it? Yes, it's it's really it's really nice because we can also target uh, you know our, our, our readership because we know what cities they're particularly looking at, what pages they're looking at. And as you say, it's just a, f a free version. We don't have to go to Google and start paying them to, to send us traffic. And this is very, very useful. Yeah, and one of the things we, when we when we get together, we talk we talk about the, the challenges we face in, in business, and every business has similar challenges, whatever they're doing. And um, we sometimes talk about people issues. That when you say it's hard work, certainly finding the right people, motivating them, what how to get them to do what you want, how to stop them doing things you don't want them to do, are challenges. Could you reflect a bit on what what you've learned? And uh, I guess you've been here. Probably 20 years now, 15, 20 years, a long time. And maybe it was the same as Zimbabwe, maybe it was different, but other like universal truths about. Well, I think, I, I think it was very, very different in Zimbabwe. But here, what I've tried to learn is um, I think it's very important for anybody running a business to realize what they're not good at. Because, you know, any person who's leading a business tends to think they're quite good at a lot of things. But actually, it's realizing what you're not good at, which I think are. It's been the most inf useful information for me. I'm not good at a lot of things, and it's important for me then to find people who are good at that. And then, in, in addition to that, once you've found them, to let them get on with it and not, not try and micromanage them, because no doubt you, they're, they're better at that than you are. So I think that anybody leading a business nowadays 
has really got to spend the majority of their time finding the right people in the first place, motivating them, but not over managing them, but rather just encouraging those people to come up with the right solutions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's certainly true. So obviously, it can be quite a challenge to motivate people when you don't quite understand what they're doing. If they're, there's a there's a level of trust well, and knowledge, right? Yes, yes, but you have to motivate them about the project. I think that's that's the bottom line. You need to find people who um, can share your passion for a particular project. You don't need to know exactly how they're going to get there. Well, that's a really interesting insight, and I, I um, have have uh, done a bit of leadership in my background. I was um, in the in the Army for 13 years, and before that I was at the Military Academy, and so I guess that's what I've had to do most of my life. And, and the thing that really impresses me about uh, people who grew up on a farm or people who've, who've run farms uh, is, um, you know, communism in Poland and in, 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 in the Soviet Union actually competed pretty well with the West in industrial. But what they never got right, and you see this in, in North Korea now, and, and no communist state has ever gotten this right, is agriculture. And I like to say that the reason communist states have such a hard time with, with, with farming is in a, in, a, in a factory, you can bring everyone together and you can watch them all. But in farming, you have to trust people out on the field to do exactly the right thing. Um, and that... Is that a skill that you had to learn, which is to delegate and trust, or do you think that that's something that that people, um, you know, are innately um, developed? Well, well, I would say, I mean, in Zimbabwe, the farming there is very much a kind of top-down ordering of, you know, maybe large large numbers of staff to do certain things. So it's very much, uh, you know, ordering people to work on a large scale. I would say it was the type of uh, management that I'm, I'm involved here in Poland is completely different. It's about realizing that you can't tell people to do all the stuff all of the time because you just don't have enough hours in the day to be going around checking on everybody all the time. So here it's been a case, as I say, of learning what one's not good at and realizing that one only has a certain number of hours and that you have to trust other people. Um, of course, then is how, how do you find the right people is the sort of the next question. And what I've learned is to, I, I can't say that works all the time, but I do look at people's CVs when they are submitted to me. But those are looked at fairly briefly just to see that they have some basic data there. What I really enjoy is meeting people. And I also don't necessarily advertise for a particular job. I'd rather say if I've got a project in mind and I'm looking for people to join me, and uh, rather see what that person has and where their real passion would be, and rather find a, a role for that person rather than try to squeeze them into a particular box. So very interesting. I just comment that although Sam has got got his view, I absolutely don't agree that the communists were good at organising industry. There are two problems. One, they were just better at that than farming. That's my opinion. Cost control. It's very very hard to control costs in a, a communist uh, system. The other yeah. is innovation is almost impossible. It's very hard to get your inputs and so it's, it's hard to get the machine you need to run your factory your machine tools your printing machine it's hard to get the spare parts and the idea of getting a new one and getting spare parts and not all the things that you know a western 
printing machinery and manufacturer like Heidelberg is highly incentivized to keep you supplied with spare parts, which they charge you a lot of money for, and then they want you to buy a new one, and you want to get the new one because it's better. And the communist system was good if you had a single objective, build the best rocket. Even now, <laughs> even now the Soviet, I should call it Russia these days, is highly effective at producing yeah. missiles, uh, things for particular objectives, but in terms of like how to make a tractor work a little bit better, a little bit more efficiently, it just didn't work for that. So that's that, but that's a separate issue. But I also think the, the coming back to the people issues, it's a very interesting and unusual idea to look for the people and then design the position for the person. And that is an idea that I think some of our listeners could reflect on because that's not something you'll hear from everyone. Yeah, I, I just went through um, a, a situation in my business where I'd, I'd hired someone to do one job and realized that that wasn't working. And rather than, and this is something a business mentor taught me, is before you get rid of someone who's, who's not doing the right job, which can, you know, not only have a bad effect on that person, but potentially the morale of the team, is say, well, what do you want to do? Um, Correct. And, yes. You know, and, and one of the things I like to do when I when I sit down with an employee is, what do you want to do when you leave? Because I'm not naive here. No one stays in the same company for 40 years anymore. What what's your real goal here? And if you just lay your cards out on the table now then I can put you in a position so that you're able to reach that objective that you have personally and, and then everything's aligned. So how have you, how have you managed to, I think that's a great insight. How have you managed to design positions for people? Do you, do you talk about what they want to do within the company after the company or what's well, your... I mean, perhaps a, a, a kind of interesting example would be, uh, I told you about getting PHP uh, programming for dummies, you know, when I, when I had the beginning. And uh, in order to learn that, my wife at the time was uh, studying at the Academy of Fine Arts, and uh, we had a, a, a young child, so there was no time for me to be studying. So we found a nanny, and this nanny was actually uh, a gentleman who, after three months, turned out to be a fantastic nanny, and he was immediately employed and is a salesperson who is working with us to this day. He's actually our lead salesperson. So again, we're seeing somebody who was extremely good in a job which he probably wasn't familiar with, i.e. as a nanny, he actually studied, did religious studies at theology at university, did the work, did it fantastically, and then was was brought on board as being a trust, trustworthy, hardworking person, and has found himself in that, that role. So, yes, if I'm going to a new project, I will search far and wide for people, and the chances are that the people who will end up working with me didn't imagine that they would be working in that particular uh, role, unless of course they're technical people, for example, web developers, so on. But um, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking for people who whose eyes sparkle when I mention their idea. I mean, that's really the bottom line, because mm -hmm. I don't want to be putting lots and lots of energy into people, because one can only do that for a short while. But the energy needs to come back from them as well. Yeah, and a lot of the other people we've been talking to are talking about how wonderful Krakow is. And one of the things that I reflect on when I meet you every now and again, you, you're talking about packing your bags and leaving. <laughs> uh, and and you're, not the, you're, you're not the sort of the automatic, although through your websites, you've been like being an ambassador for the city through your professional business activities. Um, obviously, you're not someone who's always keen on being where we are now. And, uh, 
Well, what are your reflections on Krakow as a place to well, live, work, and play? And no, Krakow is an absolutely wonderful city. I mean, uh, you know, from from April through to October, <laughs> shall we say? Uh, particularly if you have an African background, I, I you know, I miss I miss the sun, I miss the outdoors. That's really that's really where my heart is. Um, having said that, I do feel at home here. I think Krakow has uh, an enormous amount uh, to to attract people to live here. And I'm absolutely overwhelmed with the transformation in Krakow since I first came, particularly now with the startup scene, with so many new people coming here. It's absolutely a revelation. And I, I wouldn't say as time goes by, I feel less inclined, shall I say, to leave Krakow than I did in those early gray days, shall we Shall we say, which, which are very familiar to you, Richard. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, when the macro cash and carry is part of the Haniel family concern enormous hypermarkets. I don't know, I think they're all over the world. In 2015, when we're recording them, they're a big retailer. I think Haniel's revenues are $26 billion uh, euros worldwide. And when they set up the first macro cash and carry in Sosnovians, which is about uh, 50 miles or 80 kilometers to the west, I remember thinking how lucky we were <laughs> to have a, a shop like that so close. And, you know, that's an unimaginable thing where there are, you know, it's 10 minutes away and that's too far. So, you know, the Poland, Poland and Krakow has been transformed. The other thing that's nice about Poland, uh, Krakow within Poland, is that in quite a conservative culture, um, it's actually quite progressive. And I would say that foreigners are made to feel quite welcome here. And also, uh, you know, people, you know, in terms of tolerance, marches and uh, diversity, it's quite international. Would you, is, is that important for you as well? Um, I think what's important to, to me is seeing just um, how confident young people here are beginning to become. Mm-hmm. I, I, whether there's a, a shopping centre has opened up or something closer or, or further away uh, is merely a symptom of that. Uh, I think Polish people don't realise how capable they are. That's That's the bottom line. And I think that's just beginning to change. And I'm really looking forward to to seeing when that whole, if you like, grey past has just washed away and the Poles rightly take their position as great innovators and great businessmen both in Europe and the world. Yeah, that's certainly true. And, uh, certainly, uh, apparently, around the angry young men movement in the 1960s, uh, there was this genre of writers and they said never trust anyone over 30 because people over 30 then would remember the Second World War. And I think there's a, and the idea that people who grew up in the war were just fundamentally different. It changed their values, what was important, not necessarily in a bad way, but they were just different. Right. So I think the people who remember communism are different. And then the generation who grew up in the aftermath of communism, they had their parents talk about this world that they didn't really understand. But Poland at that stage wasn't a bit like Western Europe. It was this sort of strange no man's land. Uh, it wasn't only true in Poland, but certainly in Poland. And now young people say things like, I'm lucky to be Polish. Of course, they are lucky to be Polish. They were a member of NATO or a member of the European Union. A Polish passport is a valuable document that enables you to travel to almost everywhere other than the United States. Except the United States, States, the which, United States. which has repaid Poland's um, staunch uh, alliances and loyalties and our recent misadventures uh, with um, visas, visa requirements and other yes, things. Yes. But 
you know, when, when I'm king for a day, I'll change that. <laughs> well, when we, we often come back to the visa topic. My ex-wife was uh, is still is Polish, and in the days before the European Union, we struggled mightily, as I'm sure you did, to get you know nasty, invasive, unpleasant interviews. You know, Britain's a nice country, but you really have to make people line up. And of course, for some people listening, this is still a reality. This visa apartheid, this idea that by the not by anything to do with your personality or character or or colour, or anything you've done that you're responsible for. Um, sorry, of course you're not responsible for your colour, so I don't know better to leave that, that's not what I meant. Uh, you're born in Ukraine, you don't have the right to travel around the world. You're born in Poland, 50 kilometres to the west, and you do. And it's, it's one of those great injustices. Um, just looking forward a bit, obviously you, you've now got your new, you've got your existing business, you've got, uh, you've got, you've got to eat away, um, which obviously I hope will become the you and then I'll be able to say, I used to know Mark Bradshaw oh, and, and Martha Bradshaw, they're my, my, my billionaire friends. Uh, but looking forward, maybe making huge amounts of money isn't the objective, maybe it is, but if you think of future projects, do you know what your future projects are going to be or is it just like one thing at a time and whatever comes No, up? no, it's just I, I'm, I really like uh, the idea of, of starting something really small with a small group of highly focused people with an original idea and just just take on the world basically it you know often doesn't work but the actual process of meeting those people working with them is in itself a huge reward um as i say whether it turns out to be a great success or not is obviously of of, of importance but it's not the only and, and only thing i would say it's extremely important to find people to work with who you really enjoy being with mm. every day um, and not just think about you know the, the, the turnover for the month or for the year or those sorts of things. Those bring their own sort of pleasure. But actually, interacting with people every day is what really drives me and brings me you know happily into work. Yeah, people sometimes ask me about my work-life balance, and I say it's not really work-life; it's activity and inactivity. And the thing that frustrates me is being bored and not having things to do. And Correct. when I start a new social initiative, like yeah, I was very glad you came along. I was telling. Telling Sam here, you came along to the first open coffee, even though you're not a natural networking type person. But you came along to support the first thing. That gives me a lot of satisfaction that that event happens, even if there's no obvious business benefit. It's like before there wasn't anything. Now there is. And it wasn't me, but I helped make it happen. The help Marta Correct. And so that, that there's a satisfaction in making things happen. Of course, in, in terms of a business, I would say that a business that doesn't make money as a hobby, and hobbies are important too. But like making money is also part of it. Correct. Yeah, and I think that also, um, you know, I think one of the things you said, a lot of people come to me and, and, and say, well, what do you think about this idea? Do you think that will make a lot of money? And I, I always throw, throw it right back at them and said, would you pay to do that? You know, because right. you are going to pay to do that as an exactly. entrepreneur exactly. And, and likely never get any money out of it. Um, right. And the statistics say, and so are you passionate about that to the point where you will pay to do it until which point Correct. it is not a hobby and uh, it pays you money. Correct. And um, I think that you're you're definitely designing some projects here that you're passionate well, about. Well, that, that's, that's extremely important. I'd also say to people, you know, people sometimes say, well, so-and-so seems to be doing extremely well. Maybe I should do that. You should really stay clear of things that you you have no knowledge about, or, or as you say, no passion about. Because uh, just just to aim for something because you think you can make money there is seems to be a ticket 
It's a failure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I've had many failures, and sometimes the reason has been that. Sometimes it's always a question of the timing, the idea, the people, luck. I think luck is incredibly important, and most people who are successful recognize luck in their past, and uh, it's stupid to think that it's just about your own talents. But I, I think that um, sometimes the innovation that I've been involved with hasn't been that radical. It's been bringing an idea to Poland that works elsewhere. Sometimes it, it may not be the only place in the world, like your friend with the with the really? ski show, the ski it's a chalet job site. Is that right. why don't you do something a bit like? So there's nothing to be ashamed of of bringing an idea to a new audience. And right. in the in the company that I've recently started running, that I founded many years ago, we're looking at the innovation process and what we. Or saying if we want to be talking to our most important customers about what their problems and their pain points are and you know i say i'm going to be really excited if we discover they've got a problem that no one has a solution to because if we can find that then potentially that could be the future of our business we're looking for the thing that we can solve because of our technology and people and experience and so i think it's really it's really satisfying to have in mind that we're looking to solve a problem that people haven't Properly solved. And yeah, I love this idea. You're in a city, you're hungry, there's a lot of shitty restaurants, and you think there's probably someone doing some really good home cooking. You know, maybe those people would welcome, welcome a, a bunch of tourists. I can imagine a lot of issues with this idea that you're going to discover as you do, you do this. <laughs> well, well, as I say, we've already run our, our first, first event, and of course, we've had very positive feedback from it, but, but of course, Questions have come up, you know. One of them: Can we bring alcohol? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's, it's going to be fascinating and uh, something we're really looking for. That's you, the part of it. It's the discovery. Do you do you provide alcohol? Yes, we do at the moment. But, so but again, it's like people want to bring extra. Well, well, exactly. But you know, we do have a group of eight Norwegians planning to come in May. So the first question was: Can we bring more alcohol? <laughs> we, we're worried that you do not have enough. Can we take the more alcohol <laughs> option? <laughs> yeah, that's, no, but that's, that's also it's like the beauty of actually doing things is you discover things that you would never imagine are going to be the problem. Uh, then other problem, because you know that, and some other brilliant guy designing your website hasn't actually got the experience. He doesn't figure it out, and then suddenly you're, you're trying to take a commission on a dinner, and you know someone in San Francisco gets 15 Norwegians each bring you a bottle of vodka, and they don't, and they don't know how to handle that problem. Well, and, and of course, another, another thing that comes with that is, you know, how long does this event go on for? Because, you know, you, after a couple of hours of your guests, and, you know, they bought a lot of alcohol, they might decide they want to stay on until the early hours. And, you know, how does that affect your home and the, the rest of your what, what you might do is what I do with some events. I organize, I'm hosting this from 7 till 9, and then if you want to carry on, you've named a, a restaurant or a bar nearby. And so after that, if you want to carry on, you go here. Yeah. And then at least you can say, you've got a process which isn't quite as rude as saying, I you go, I can go. Exactly. Okay, exactly. Now, are there any closing? I, I, I feel we've, you've given us a, it's a Friday evening, probably. There's many other things you'd like to be doing other than uh, staying late in the office to talk to us. Um, so are there, a few, are there any questions that you'd like to ask or issues you'd like to raise, Sam, or any closing remarks from you, Mike? No, I just, I, I just think that it, it was, it's really, um, I'm in the publishing world myself, so I'm very uh, fascinated by seeing someone who's uh, done it well, uh, especially in this community, which is, I was drawn to this community for probably the same reasons you've been successful. Uh, and, um, but you know, also I think what the listener is going to gain from this is really, uh, insights on, on leadership and, and people and, and, uh, um, the easiest part in innovation is the idea. Uh, the hardest part is uh, finding the right people and then motivating them to execute it. And I think that, 
what you've done, Mark, a lot of people can learn from, and hopefully uh, this this um, episode will be useful for that. And then uh, if you ever are coming to Krakow, uh, Project, Project Kajimaj listener, and you were um, uh, looking for a place to eat authentic local cuisine, you know where to go. You go to Local Life. And, uh, Easily. And then, and then go to local life and, pick and, in, and in the in the coming weeks hopefully eataway.com and yeah and eataway.com and make sure you go to local life too and you'll probably get some coupon for eataway and and visit all these great websites that uh mark has developed in the in the central european region yes and we we, we make show notes for each of these podcasts so we've got links to all these places and when uh eataway.com is launched for sure and that's quite an easy one to remember when it is launched of course we'll uh We'll, we'll update it so that people can find it even more easily. And I'd, I'd just like to close by saying thank you, Mark, and thank you, Sam, for the second podcast of the day. It's <laughs> Friday the 13th, and we did two podcasts, so that's an unusual one. And may, may I also just sort of end up by saying, you know, one of, the, one of the great joys of running a business is that it gives you a great opportunity to meet interesting people. It's very difficult if you find somebody that you would like to meet to just say, oh, I'd like to meet you. But... Using the actual uh, medium of your project, you can always go to them and say, I'd like to talk to you because of this. So uh, just just as we've done this evening, it's been a great pleasure to meet both of you. Uh, you, Richard, of course, I know well, but, but Sam, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you, uh, Mark, again, Richard, for making another introduction. I've uh, been amazed by how much, um, in a short period of time, this podcast has taught me about the history of the Krakow uh, uh, Silicon Valley transformation that we're talking about and uh, hopefully helping us chart a path into the future for making it even better and, and uh, bringing everyone together to do this podcast has been a lot of fun. So, And then finally, Project Kajimish listener, I, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please go to iTunes and uh, drop a review on there. If you haven't, please email me and tell me what we can do um, to improve your experience. And... Uh, finally, um, share this with your friends, whether you're from Krakow or you're from halfway around the world and are inspired to visit here one day. I think it's an exciting thing that's going on here, and uh, we look forward to getting the word out there about something that's happening uh, really special. So until next time, looking forward to uh, joining you again for another episode in your, uh, in your phone or wherever you choose to listen to this. Thank you. Thank you for showing your support for innovation in Europe. Tell other innovators about the entrepreneurial movement by leaving a review in iTunes. For detailed show notes and community updates, visit projectkazimierz.com.